Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're talking with Tim Moen. Hello, Tim. Hello. I didn't formally introduce you. This is Rocket. Hi. I'm Gary. Welcome to Sustainable Minds. My pleasure to be here. Terrific. So a little bit about you, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Tim is a globally recognized ESG executive with over 20 years of experience developing strategies to embed sustainability into business operations for Fortune 500 companies. He's one of LinkedIn's 2022 top voices in the green economy, and he's consistently recognized in the top 20 corporate social responsibility influence leaders. He's currently a partner and director at the Boston Consulting Group, which is relatively new. BCG is a global consulting firm that partners with leaders in businesses and society to tackle the most important challenges. Prior to BCG, Tim was the chief executive advisor officer at ESG Advisor. Previous to that, he was executive vice president and chief sustainability officer at Persephone, the leading climate disclosure and carbon management solution. And I find this interesting. From 2017 to 2020, you were the chief executive of GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, the world's largest sustainability reporting standard. Yep, that's exactly right. And we probably don't have time to go through the whole resume. We take up the whole podcast. Yeah. One last thing before we jump by here. I want to acknowledge that you're an author of a book, Changing Business from the Inside Out. And there you go. There he said, too bad this isn't a, too bad this isn't a video. Yeah. You can see the book. And you write a weekly newsletter on top of all this stuff. I do. So that's terrific. We're thrilled to be speaking with you. I kind of want to start something I read yesterday. In the Wall Street Journal, there was an article about companies seek to advert backlash, avoid talk of social green issues. And this was from information gathered from earnings calls. And they came up with a statistic that conversations around uh, social green ESG was down 31% this year from last year. So what are you seeing out there? Are you experiencing this? Yeah, I think that, you know, if you take a step back for a minute, the topic ESG, environmental, social, and governance is not new. It's been around for as long as I've been around, which is a very long time, but we've rebranded it. And so very unfortunately, sadly, this abbreviation ESG has become a political punching bag in this year's election cycle. And so because of that, I think it's natural for companies to really take a step back. It's been called green hushing, which, you know, I understand the reason for it, because who wants to be in the crosshairs on this? But it's sad because in my 20 some years of working in inside companies, these issues were ones that we were super proud of. Most companies release a sustainability report. In fact, the statistic on that is that 96% of the S&P 500 is, are currently 
voluntarily disclosing information about their sustainability goals and progress, which is just phenomenal. But now that this abbreviation ESG has become this political football, many companies are stepping back from at least talking about it. I haven't seen them step back from their performance, which is great, but that could happen in the future. Okay. So you're not seeing people really sort of pulling back. And I think we've read a few articles where I think of an oil company is abandoning a few initiatives that, that they had. But in general, you're not seeing companies changing their commitments. Not yet. There are some uh, notable exceptions in the financial sector. For example, we saw the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, one of the world's worst acronyms, GFANS. There's several other terrible acronyms underneath that, like the (laughs) Net Zero Insurance Alliance, I think it's called, NZIA. A whole bunch of the insurance companies dropped out of that recently. Vanguard, a, a giant asset manager, dropped out of the asset manager group. So you are seeing some of this attrition as the political heat starts up. All of those groups that I mentioned had joined the, the Glasgow climate meeting in 2022, I believe it was, or 2021, is where this was all announced. And all of those companies signed up to go towards net zero. So whatever they were in, asset managers, asset owners, insurance providers, they were going to align their activities towards net zero, which is massive. But it's easy to say something. It's much harder to do something. And I think as that reality sunk in, plus the political pressure, some of these companies are in fact dropping out. But bottom line, I mean, capitalism has recently really become aligned with ESG in the background. And it's a paradigm shift that I, I mean, do you agree that it's not going away, especially with the majority of asset managers now putting an emphasis on it, although there's not that comparable data. So it's sort of confused on the back end. But it just seems like since the pandemic, people are are aware that changes in the environment can make winners and losers of corporations. So, what I mean, do you agree? That's a great observation, Rocket. I'll just add to it. I mentioned the sustainability reporting phenomenon. That really started back in the late 80s after the Exxon Valdez oil spill was the largest oil spill of its time. Sadly, it's been eclipsed by Deepwater Horizon. But at the time, there was this huge outcry. We want to know what companies are doing. And it created the Valdez Principles, which created Ceres, which created the Global Reporting Initiative that I was CEO of. And so this whole notion of transparency is not new. It's been going on for a long time. What is new is that over the decades we've been reporting on this information, investors learned that there is material information in sustainability disclosures. They found opportunity and risk in this information. And that has led to this entire crazy state that we're in with new regulations and standards across the world that are saying, hey, we have to disclose sustainability information in our financials because investors need to know. And that's what's led to this political backlash and all the regulations that we're seeing in the SEC and overseas in Europe and other capitals. So 
that's really the new. It's investor interests in sustainability. You published, uh, I think yesterday in your newsletter, or this week in your newsletter, that the EU Commission softens CSRD. The commission published an update. The big news is that reporting on all 11 sustainability topics will be subject to a double materiality assessment. What's the relevance of that? And if you followed all that, you're as nerdy as me. (laughs) It's the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, or CSRD, is Europe's version of having sustainability information disclosed or reported in financial statements. But like so many of these topics, Europe's taken a sort of more green approach than the rest of the world. The rest of the world, like the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S., has said, look, we're really interested in only financially material information. That's what we need to put in financial disclosure. Makes sense, right? But in Europe, they said, look, we want to not just have financially material information. We want to have information about the company's impact on the world, whether it's financial or not. That's double materiality. It's financially material and it's material for people on the planet. And that's what Europe has really done. Now, as we look at what happened late on Friday, and I reported in a special edition on Monday, Europe, I think, has pulled back from that position and said, instead of requiring all companies to kind of report on the same things at the same time in the same ways, we're going to allow them to choose which of these 11 issues are material to them. But in choosing those issues, your company now has to go through this materiality assessment, looking again at both sides of the coin, effect on the company and company's effect on the world. That's what's been done. So it really has changed the policy. And the reason that so many people are interested in this is because it is changing so fast. New regulations and standards, and they're changing all the time. Yeah, they're very important. And it does. So many of our clients are, you know, one client does work in 50 countries around the world, big presence in Europe. And as a, another new client has a huge presence in Europe. So all this really affects what they do, their strategies and the reporting. So back on the future of uh, ESG disclosure regulations. So shed some light what's going on with the SEC and when will we see that? And what's the impact that's going to have on public companies? Yeah, so the Securities and Exchange Commission issued a draft regulation back in March of last year, 2022. So it's been over a year now, and they've got tens of thousands of comments back. And of course, it's become quite politicized now. And so because of all of that, the SEC has really kind of taken their time to issue a final regulation on climate disclosure. And just today, I found out that it's now scheduled for October. That's interesting, and we'll see if it actually happens. But as soon as that regulation is out, it will be litigated. There's 100% chance of that. And normally, when litigation occurs on a final regulation, that regulation is set aside or stayed while the courts consider it. And so I do think that for most American companies that are looking at this, they, they understand that landscape. They understand that it'll be a while before this all gets shaken out in the U.S., It's interesting, though. I think a lot of companies do realize that the non-financial disclosure and being transparent is is critical to value creation at this point, that the SEC can 
take their time and do whatever. But it's encouraging to me that a lot of especially big players, and they're able to do it easier, are seeing that, I mean, the cost of capital is going to change if they don't get on on the train with ESG, that there are a lot of issues that are going to help them stay in the game, even though regulation's been sort of slow getting there. That's 100% right. And I think that smart companies are looking at the trend lines here and beginning to take action right now because these changes in regulation and standards are not easy. I mentioned, you know, most companies are already reporting many of the ESG issues in their sustainability reports. But when it comes to taking some of that, in the case of SEC, it's climate information, and putting it into your financials, it's an entire business transformation that is required. This is what we do at BCG. So for example, I was in corporations for over 20 years. We'd issued a sustainability report every year. And that report typically came out about six months after the end of the fiscal year. Well, imagine now pulling that six months in and then adding assurance and all of the legal reviews that have to go on and then trying to explain to your CFO what sustainability means. In, you know, I mean, there's a whole lot of education and business transformation that has to go on. So one of our messages to clients is start now, but also look for the business value. I kind of think compliance is a lagging indicator and we can sort of frame it as a wake-up call. This stuff has been coming for a while. Investors have wanted this information in a reliable, comparable format for a while. Now is the time to really get your act together. But while you're doing that, there's plenty of room to identify risk and opportunity throughout your company that can provide business value. My next question is, I don't want you to spill the beans on any one <laughs> company, but I'm just curious, and I could share from our point of view, but what are some of the biggest challenges your clients are facing today in this transformation in this area? Yeah, so I mentioned the transformation, that's certainly one, but I think another is just the confusion element. I mean, one is we're talking like in kind of a foreign language for many of the folks who aren't in this space. And so I think there's a basic educational need. And what you're seeing is breaking down of silo walls within companies. You know, the the CFO, the finance division, the investor relations department, they haven't really been well-versed in all of this, and now they need to be. And then you need to bring in legal and corporate audit and all of those other functions that typically really have not been engaged in the sustainability function. So there's that whole, like, let's upskill everyone and get them talking together and working together. There's opportunity from a career standpoint for a lot of folks in that too. In fact, I read an article in Forbes that said a a new job that's being created in a lot of companies is the ESG controller. Somebody who's really overseeing all the processes and reliability information. So there's that. And I do think that boards are also going to have to get involved. Where if you look at the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, TCFD, there's 11 required disclosures. This has been pulled through in the SEC rule. It's been pulled through in the Europe rule. But of those 11, fully eight of them are qualitative business processes, like policies and processes, like How often does your board meet and discuss these things? How involved are they in setting goals and tracking progress? 
These are things companies can do right now. And the data part that we always focus on that because it's hard, that will take some more time to get it in the right condition for financial disclosure. Right. Kurt Harrison was a guest and he works at Russell Reynolds and uh, it's an executive search company. And I know Kurt talk- and I know Russell Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> and he talk about the proliferation of the chief sustainability officer, right? Everybody needs to hire a chief sustainability officer of your a certain size. Are you seeing that actually coming to fruition? Yes. And there's a great article out this week from my colleague, Bob Eccles and Allison Taylor. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, on yeah. the role of the CSO. It's such a great question because my book, Changing Business from the Inside Out, was written about 10 years ago. And it was kind of the practical, tactical manual for chief sustainability officers 10 years ago. I need to rewrite the book because it's essentially <laughs> right? changed it's gotten kicked upstairs, right? So now that role is sitting at the C-suite table and involved in business strategy. And that's the big difference that we're seeing in the CSO role. It used to be kind of a reputational, go get us another award and ranking and pat on the head and great, go away. Now it's part of business. And I think that is really exciting. Very exciting. Again, a value creation as well as just being that integrator. I was going to ask you about your feelings about the annual report really going hand in hand, the financial information and the non-financial information. And if you think in the future, there will be a movement for it to be integrated, integrated reporting. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing is the integration of ESG information into financial. Some people will rebel at the non-financial label because it should all be financially relevant information. But I think therein lies the problem. I've seen a lot of companies simply add a section that speaks to, let's say, climate change, but not truly integrate it into the financial disclosure. To integrate it, you have to consider the risks and the costs and looking at future scenarios, like where would the value chain of this company be at risk? How much would it cost us to transition to a low-carbon economy? Those are the kind of considerations, again, that are at the C-suite and the board level that really need to be in these disclosures. That's why investors are asking for this. I mean, a a quick example, it's really hard to get basic insurance anymore if your home is near the water. Well, you better. I'm in a fire area, so believe me, I know. Exactly. PG&E goes bankrupt because they're not considering the fire risks and so as climate change really takes effect, we're seeing the, the whole risk picture change. These have material financial impacts across the economy. Absolutely. Sort of scary. It is scary, <laughs> it is scary because people, it's really existential because, I mean, it can just undermine our economy, just cut it off at the knees. Absolutely right. And so I think some of these discussions we're having right now and the policies that are coming out right now are really to address this, but it's not the forward thinking, let's get out in front of it. It's much more like, where should I put my money? Because climate change is now really taking a bite. What? How do you feel about those scope three and really reporting on scope three? It seems to be a lagger compared to scope one and scope two. People are getting that handled and doing it, but just how would you best approach just starting to report scope three? 
and gathering that data. Yeah, scope three is the big issue, obviously, in climate accounting and climate reporting. It's because for most companies, it's the vast majority of the climate impact. In many cases, upwards of 90% of the climate impact is in the value chain, either upstream in the supply chain or downstream in the products. And when you really look at it that way, it changes how you act. For example, when I was running corporate responsibility for advanced micro devices or AMD, we took a look at the life cycle. We quickly found that the biggest part of it was downstream in the products we created because those semiconductors were using power throughout their life cycle. And we created an energy efficiency program, which had actually had a win-win. People want energy efficient chips, and that was great for sales, but they also could reduce the power draw. So that kind of thinking that's really good. Now, in terms of reporting, it's a freaking nightmare because companies are trying to disclose information from parts of the supply chain they don't control. And so you're really like trying to spread your influence and get the information. And it's super difficult. And I think that's where a lot of companies were rebelling against the SEC rule. And you're seeing, again, some pushback in Europe because just getting that information, much less managing it, is super hard. Do you think, you know, I've seen a lot of companies that are really trying to partner with air quotes with their supply chain with companies that they use and really educate them because there are many that just aren't concerned (laughs) with the same. They're in locations that aren't really focusing on what we're focusing on. What do you think the best approach is? Yeah, you're exactly right. Some of the companies that are in far-flung supply chains, which tend to be global, are not on board with reporting. And so the state of the art right now has unfortunately led us to doing a lot of estimation. And you can estimate the climate impacts from suppliers by where they are, what industry they're in, how big they are, et cetera. And that's that's kind of how it's done now in the absence of better data. However, I am seeing a shift, and that shift is really coming in the form of these carbon border adjustment mechanisms or tariffs. So, for example, in Europe, they have this CBAM, Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, where if you're bringing products into Europe, it's going to start with basic materials like steel and cement. Then the embedded carbon in that product, if it's over the European amount, needs to pay a tax at the border. And you're seeing this more and more and more. So that to me is really going to start to shake this out because it's going to cost money in order to move these goods around the world. In a globalized economy, I think you'll start to see companies getting on board with how much carbon is in our stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. How, I mean, what do you see with carbon offsetting? What trends, you know, have you observed with your clients and with the backlash going towards net zero? Is it, are they really doing anything except trading? What are your feelings about that? So offsets have gotten a bad name, let's face it, right? Uh, John Oliver did a whole bit on offsets a few months back that made everybody laugh, but (laughs) kind of left the industry going, okay, now what? Because in a cap and trade environment, you have to have the ability to trade. So what are you trading? You've got to trade somebody else's better efforts at at reducing carbon. So we have to be able to trade. And nature-based solutions is another great way to 
pull carbon out of the air and then again, create credits. So I think it has great merit, especially as we transition to a low carbon economy of the future. But it is just that it's an aid to an overall transition. It's an important one. It needs better regulation. And I think that there will be better regulation so that these offsets are additive, they're permanent, therefore they create value, and you can then put a a price on it. That's still maturing, like so much of the systems that we're in right now are, but I think it's really important for the transition. Yeah, I mean, we're still an economy that unfortunately is tied to oil and gas. Right. And so it takes a while because you've got, you know, some of these capital assets will be around for a while. You know, an airplane is what, a 30, 40 year investment, a car, maybe five to seven to 10 years. So it will take time. And that's where offsets really, I think, will come into play. Slight change of direction. We work around corporate brand and uh, our model is there's three pillars. There's the, your a company's market position and value proposition, which is typical standard brand stuff that you need. But a third, the second pillar is around core beliefs, your purpose, your vision, your values and behaviors, actions and mindsets that go with those values. And a third pillar we believe is sustainability. What are the ambitions, actions and outcomes companies are doing? And I think that plays right into a corporate brand couple of questions. Do you see much of a connection? And I'm, I'm almost hesitant to say this because it's an overused term. And a lot of people, when they do it, they're not doing it right. They It's a business description, but a true purpose. Do you see purpose influencing sustainability? Absolutely. And this is where the world that I lived in for so many years, Intel, Apple, AMD, yeah. the companies I worked for, it really had purpose. And it wasn't just talk. It was the culture of the organization and the leadership of the organization. And it matters. It matters greatly. So if you really just think about employment, you know, recruit, retain, and engage, it hits all three. And especially as the workforce is younger, they sort of come pre-wired to want to work for more than a paycheck. And it's not just the company has a good sustainability report. It's that these young people, these young leaders want to get involved in the corporate programs in the space. I've seen it time and time again. And when you talk about brand, it is the largest intangible asset on the balance sheet. I mentioned Apple, you know, I worked there for several years, the biggest brand in the world, right? Hundreds of billions of dollars. There's an organization called RepTrack. You're probably well aware of them, but they, the last time I looked at it, like, the majority of the brand value, this billion, billions, and billions of dollars value was manifest in ESG activities and behaviors, policies, communications. All of that matters. And so if you're really trying to price this intangible ESG sustainability purpose, look at brand. Brand is where I think you can really get the value. And it's consumer-facing, it's employee-facing, it's investor-facing. Super important. Yeah. And it's a good determination, a good way to understand the people who really aren't committed. Because if there's not alignment, it's just sort of faking it. (laughs) At least I tend to see that when we work with companies. 
are they really integrated? With sustainability, what you were saying earlier, it's a multidisciplinary team that has to be participating. And that, get, you know, touching so many aspects of the corporation from the IR, from the human resources, from the environmental sustainability people to the C-suite, CFO, CEO, board. I mean, if they don't get it, then it's not real. And that trust and confidence is so important to the outside world that it is totally a part of a brand at this point. I think you're touching on something very important right now. There's a massive shakeup underway with regard to greenwashing. I write a lot about this in my newsletter. Some of the the regulatory agencies that monitor advertising and marketing are starting to take actions against company claims that can't be backed up. You mentioned offsets a minute ago. Ads were just taken down in Britain that were relying upon offsets to make their net zero claims. And so there's really a shakeout going on throughout the world both in enterprise and finance, of if you're going to say it, you better be able to back it up. And I think smart companies have always been on that. But as sustainability and ESG has sort of become at top of mind for a lot of people, you're seeing many, many more claims that aren't backed up by fact. And that, I think, is getting cut out right now. Yeah, I agree. And people that don't understand that are going to have problems in the future. They're definitely at risk. You know, we've seen a few of these enforcement actions over the last couple of years. I don't know if you recall last year that Deutsche Bank was actually raided by police in Germany for greenwashing claims. So they went in there to to go through the documents after Desiree Fixler, who's a friend, blew the whistle on them. That's just a very high profile case. But SEC has been issuing fines on this stuff, especially financial institutions selling financial products as branded as ESG or sustainable. All of this stuff is getting sort of right-sized as we speak. Yeah. Well, I follow Allison Taylor and not much gets past her. So (laughs) (laughs) She's sharp. I love her. She calls people out. I love her. So we talk to a lot of small and mid-sized companies that are just starting their sustainability or ESG journey. So my question is, the smaller companies like that, what advice would you give them? Because as you mentioned earlier, I mean, this is confusing, it's overwhelming. What's the top thing or what's the top three things that they need to keep focused on or do? Yeah, first is start small. I mean, most companies, they'll look at this and it's just so confusing. They don't know where to start. Pick the one thing that matters to your company. And every company has its own core competency and culture So it'll resonate when you see it. Maybe it's climate change, maybe it's packaging, maybe it's water. Pick that one thing and really dive in and understand what your company's impacts are, where are the opportunities, because a lot of this now is in the opportunity side, and work that. And then you can start building out to the other things. But start small and make it matter would be my advice. Terrific. So you've been in this business for a while. and 30 years. (laughs) 39th year, Gary. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I It feels like a lot has changed or evolved or exploded <laughs> in the past five years. So 
what the hell's gonna the next five years gonna look like? Okay. You know? <laughs> what are we gonna be talking about when we do this podcast in 2028? I get this question all the time. And <laughs> sorry. Yeah. No, it's a great question. And I here's my crystal ball, because of course no one can see the future, but from an industry veteran to all of your listeners. I do think that we're going to start seeing this dichotomy between the regulated environment and the voluntary. I've been in the voluntary side for many, many years, helping companies to express their feelings and actions on sustainability. That's going to continue because I think we're most companies are pretty staked out on this and they realize that they have a role. But then you're going to have this new sort of mandate that is going to really affect everyone else. So all publicly traded companies in the U.S., all companies doing business in Europe over a certain level, they're all going to have these requirements that will then have to be baked into their financials. That's the new piece, and that's really just now getting started. And so in the future, we're going to see these sort of cross-functional roles, the ESG controller, finance, auditing, accounting, all of the sort of traditional business roles are currently being merged with at least climate. And then probably soon after that, other sustainability issues will be added on. That's the piece that's really growing and new. I actually see both continuing and potentially being two sides of the same coin. What are we doing voluntarily? And then what are we doing because we have to? And hopefully through all of that enterprise, as I said before, Companies will look at it through what they do best, which is a core competency that makes money. And this is what's really exciting to an old guy like me is you're starting to see the confluence of a free market economy and what's good for people on the planet. My goodness, that, that couldn't be any better, right? Because if we unleash the forces of capitalism to solve sustainability problems, maybe we'll get them solved. So I'm very excited about that. I'm a big believer in that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Tim. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. Great questions. Great conversation. Yeah, a lot of good things to uh, think about here and do. So again, thank you. (laughs) My pleasure. Okay, we'll be back at you. Talk to you again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.